Our Bible reading this evening is from Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him too, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And Ephesians chapter four, starting at verse one. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. Well, thank you, uh, evening one and all. If uh, we've not met, my name's uh, Matt Fuller. And um, uh, uh, we're in chapter four. Chapter four, regulars will know we've hit the dizzy heights of chapter four. Uh, 1 to 6, working our way through the book of Ephesians. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we have sung this evening just glorious truths of who you are. Our sins, they are many, your mercy is more. Wow. Wow, that's just wonderful. Too wonderful to us. For any of us here who are self-aware, and certainly for those of us who are Christians and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you, we praise you, that even though we are so unworthy of your love, so unworthy of being your children, our sins are many, but your mercy is more, and so we're preserved in your love because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. It is glorious truth. And we pray as we turn now to how we respond to those who are yours. Would we live worthily of the honor 
of being a child of Christ, a child of you as our Father, a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we do that, we ask, for the honour of your name. Amen. Do you, um, do you fancy a knighthood? I, uh, obviously, a little uh, current, Philip Green, uh, in the news. Uh, and so, uh, I happened to look up, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what exactly is the criteria upon which people are assessed to get a knighthood. And it's quite, quite carefully listed. You go to the UK Honours website, uh, and it gives you, these are the questions that we ask. And there's a whole big, long list of questions. Let me give you an example of some of them. Um, have they brought, have the candidate, have they brought distinction to British life and enhanced its reputation? Have they exemplified the best, sustained, and selfless voluntary service? Have they carried the respect of their peers? Have they improved the lot of those less able to help themselves? Have they displayed moral courage? So those are the sort of criteria to receive a knighthood. And uh, you look at the press, the, the news this week, and you think, hmm, for the second time in about two years, Philip Green, the cause have come to strip him of his knighthood. It wouldn't be the first. It's not a common thing. But should he be stripped? Of course, the first reason was uh, his uh, treatment of BHS, stripping out a pension pot. That doesn't seem like improving the lot of those less able to help themselves, just to increase your bank balance by a few hundred million. Or again, of course, the, uh, this week, the accusations, although I think it's a fairly open secret, I think it's news to many in the industry, of bullying, of racial abuse, of sexual abuse. That doesn't sound like displaying moral courage. Actually, of course, inevitably, people say, he is not worthy of his knighthood. His life is not worthy, not consistent with the honor of being a knight of the realm. Now, make of that what you will. He wouldn't be the first, wouldn't be the last. Uh, Fred the Shred Goodwin was uh, fairly recent, uh, just a couple of years ago. The RBS banker, who, uh, how much did he cost the taxpayer? 45 billion pounds or something. That's probably not enhancing the country, is it? I, I guess you'd say. Only one woman, did you know this? I didn't. Uh, Jean Elsie uh, was stripped of her knighthood. Um, anyway, she, I don't know if it was a, I found that quite interesting. Uh, she was a head teacher, got it for her services to education, but actually she'd employed in the staff room numerous members of her own family to do not a lot. So she was corrupt. Anyway, there we go. It's not worthy. I guess the thing about knighthoods is, in theory, I don't know how I don't know what you make of the honor system, but in theory, it's a great honor. Here is something you cannot buy. You can be as wealthy as a, I don't know, David Beckham. You can't buy it. He's not going to get one uh, because of dodgy tax things. You can't buy this. It's an honor bestowed upon you. But if the honor is bestowed upon you, you're meant to live a life consistent with it, worthy of it. It's given, but there's a certain life that goes with it. And if you grossly live in contradiction to that, well, probably is right. You should have that removed. The issue here in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to do what? 
Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. If you're here and you have the extraordinary privilege, it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian, there is a lifestyle that's commensurate with that. If you're called to the wonders of knowing Jesus Christ, do live consistently with it. Paul says, I urge you to live worthily. Not that you earn that relationship, but once you've been given it, do live consistently with that. Chapter 4, verse 1, it really is the headline over the whole of the rest of the letter. Um, uh, chapters uh, 4 to 6. If you are just joining us, or perhaps just remind you, uh, Ephesians then, really, uh, God reveals his plan to unite all things under Jesus Christ. So chapter 1, verse 10, in one sense, is not a bad summary of it all. Uh, this is God's plan for history, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God is uniting everything under Jesus Christ. And at this moment in time, the church is the demonstration of that. The church uh, reveals to the world God's master plan. It's the archetype. It's the showroom, if you will, of what God is doing, uniting people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Jews and Gentiles was the great division in their day. But in our day, people from every corner of the world becoming Christians, trusting in the same Lord Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 to 3 we've looked at uh, broadly then. That is what God has done or is doing, creating unity. Chapters 4 to 6, therefore, live like this. Therefore, walk worthily, live worthily of what you've been called to so chapter 4, 1 is the headline over really the whole of the rest of the book. And the, Paul's first application is live in unity. Really chapter 4, 1 to 16 is all about uh, living worthily inside the church. And then chapters 4, 17 onwards, uh, a life outside the church in the world. It's sort of uh, the distinction that's made. But there's really one big point that he's going to say for the next few weeks or so. Walk worthily. Live worthily of what God has called you to. So we spend most of our time probably on that. Walk worthy of your calling. And then there's a how and there's a why. Okay, how? Well, by keeping unity, that's his main point. Why? Why there is only one body. Okay. So let's work through that. Walk worthy of your calling. That's the big idea. How? Oh, by keeping unity. Why? There's one body. Let's look at it then. First of all, chapter 4, verse 1. Walk worthily of your calling. Let me read it again. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, or therefore, you can translate it the other way, therefore, given everything I've said in the last three chapters, and all that truth which I proclaim, that's why I'm in prison, that's why I'm locked up, because it's pretty unpopular with the Roman Empire at the moment, therefore, given everything I've said in chapters 1 to 3, live this way. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You see, there's an enormous emphasis upon what you've been called to if you're a Christian. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it's literally live a life worthy of the calling you've been called to. Uh, and then in verse 4 here of chapter 4, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Again, the emphasis, you've, you've been given this. Or you've been called to this. You don't deserve it. You've not earned it. But given that you've received this extraordinary privilege of being called into God's family, 
did this way. Now let me just pause here and remind us, because we are jumping in here in chapter 4. It's one letter, of course. What is it that we've been called to? Well, we had read again. Um, it's not exhaustive, but let me just read again at the end of chapter 2. Remember these three pictures in particular at the end of chapter 2. You've been called into well, a citizen of God's kingdom, a member of God's family, a, a, the dwelling place of God and his temple. Let's just, just dwell on those again before we move forward. Walk worthily of this. So chapter 2, verse 19, Paul can say, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. What a privilege. Don't waste it. You've seen on the TV uh, pictures of um, uh, uh, rising up through Central America, mostly from Honduras. There's about 8,500 or so now Hondurans marching north towards the U.S. border, causing some consternation uh, in the U.S. and particularly in the White House. So about 8,500, I think it's up to now, Hondurans marching. Why? Well, they want to escape war. They want to escape poverty. They want a better life. They think if, if we cross the border into the U.S.A., well, life will be so much better for us, and it probably will. Now, just leave aside politics, please, for a moment, and just a little thought experiment. Okay, thought experiment. This is not real, probably, but thought experiment. This. Imagine, I imagine there is a certain incumbent of the White House who says, okay, okay, 10,000 Hondurans can come in in the month of November. That's it. Okay, and we're just going to draw the line. 10,000 in. And these 10,000, they're given citizenship uh, and they're given the rights uh, of citizens in the U.S. And they just think, wow, we march, we've escaped, it's so much better here, our, our families are safe, amazing. It's a great privilege. What if, say, 20, 20 of them uh, orchestrated a crime syndicate and this became public news? Only 20. What does that do to the reputation of the other thousands? And indeed, what does it do to the reputation of the incumbent of the White House? All of a sudden, he's slandered. Oh, we told you that if you let in these immigrants, they were down bound to, bound to be terrible. Uh, and the other 10,000, all of a sudden, they're very nervous and suspicious. You know, oh, you know, our reputation, these 20 have ruined the reputation of all of us. Yeah, yeah. Look, if you're called to that sort of privilege, live worthily. Citizenship. Or verse 19, the other, one of the other things here, members of God's household. That's another extraordinary privilege that Christians are called to. Again, wow, don't disgrace God if you've been called into his household. I don't know if you ever use uh, Timpsons. You know, Timpsons, the um, key cutters, shoe repairers. There's one just around the corner from here, two minutes away, uh, uh, by um, uh, Green Park Tube. I love Timpsons. You know, Timpsons are a family firm. They've been going over 100 years or so, still run by the same family. Uh, and they're never out of the top 10 of firms to work for because they're fantastic. Because as a family, here's how they operate. They say, okay, here's, here's the money we've made this year. And we're going to pay the absolute maximum to our employees and, and take what's left. It's just sort of philosophy. They have, uh, I think it's 25 holiday homes in the UK and another 25 or something around the world. And uh, their staff, they're just reserved for their staff. And you can just book into one of the holiday homes for free. Um, they have a final salary pension scheme. 
which is amazing. Most of you don't know what, even know what that means. But um, uh, that's still, that's an amazing thing. They have a make your dreams come true fund. So uh, if, uh, if you've been suffering with certain pain or your ice, they'll pay for your operations to go privately. They'll reunite families across the globe. They're an extraordinary employer. Amazing. And one of the very unusual things about them is they, have, they employ a very high percentage of ex-cons from prison. And say, so we're just going to give them another chance. Amazing. Now, imagine you are an ex-con. And you go from prison to being within the Timpsons family. Top 10 employer every year for the last 25 years or something. Never. Fantastic benefits. The, the, I mean, you get extraordinary high salary for, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm sure, it's more, I'm sure there's more to it than that. Um, but exceptionally, you know, if I get... If I get sacked, that's what I'm going to do. Um, uh, if they'll have, yeah, it's true, it's true. But, imagine, but then you're one of the ex-cons and you steal from the family firm. And everyone looks on and goes, ah, oh, yeah, we knew it would happen. Timpson's stupid policy. Stupid policy. Uh, and uh, the family themselves say, well, I'm not so sure we'll have any more ex-cons. Their reputation as employers ruined the possibilities for others to come in inhibited. They don't waste it. If you're given that sort of privilege, live a life worthy of it. That's what he's saying here. If you're, if you're brought into the citizenship of God's kingdom, if you're brought into a member of God's household, live a life worthy of it. Don't blow it. You'll ruin God's reputation and, and for others as well. The Christian family will suffer. If you don't live consistently, don't do it. Or the last little one at the end of chapter 2. They get increasingly intense, don't they? But um, verse 20 of chapter 2, you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets of Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together, rises together to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Wow. God dwells within his church. Wow. People just searching around the world for all sorts of meaning. And God who created everything is here with us for our good. Wow. So live a life consistent with that. That honors him and, and encourages others. Live a life worthy of your calling. In all these pictures, of course, you don't merit them. You can't earn citizenship. You can't force your way into God's family. You can't make God dwell within you. You can't do that. They're all gifts. They're wonderfully generous. But if you're a Christian, you know that God has given you these things. And church, collectively, he's addressing these are wonderful privileges. We take them for granted, but they are wonderful. Live a life consistent with them, worthily of them. That's the headline. Let's think briefly, then more briefly, of uh, how we might do that and why. How? How do we do that? Golly, let's pick up pace and get into another verse. Uh, verses 2 and 3. Walk worthily of your calling by keeping unity. That's how you live worthily here. Verse two and three. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit 
through the bond of peace. In simple terms, I guess you might say, Paul is saying, look, be like Jesus. Act like your older brother, Jesus. But he spells it out in a bit more detail, uh, these pairings. Be completely humble and gentle. Humility is relational in the New Testament. It is, certainly in Philippians 2 language, considering the needs of others ahead of your own. It's an irony if we make humility all about us and become introspective. In New Testament languages, considering the needs of others ahead of your own is humility. And gentleness, or be gentle. I think we hear gentle and we think weak. Again, in New Testament Greek thought, gentleness is power under control. So you're thinking an enormous wild horse that sort of... Um, what do they do? Rear, rearing up and smashing all sorts of things uh, and then is tamed, broken in. And then like one of the horses up and down the mouth, you know, uh, turns into, looks a bit like a Dobbin, you know, that's not going to do any harm to anyone. There's power, but now it's under control. That's gentleness. Like Jesus, who describes himself as gentle, we've got the whole power of almighty God there. But he doesn't coerce salvation upon anyone. He, well, he humbly dies upon a cross to take away our sin so that if you just trust in him, he gives you salvation. I mean, he is power under control. That's gentleness. Well, relate to one another in those ways. Humility, caring for the needs of others ahead of yourself. Gentleness, or you may have all sorts of strength, but you, you're gentle with others. And you get this other pairing that come together. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Patience. Live with shortcomings and endure wrongdoings. Okay, that's patience in regard to other people. You live with their shortcomings. You endure their wrongdoings. You say, oh, well, that's what people are like. I, I live with it, but they let me down. You live with shortcomings. You endure wrongdoings. So in practical terms, someone at church, a friend at church, someone you call a friend, you used to call a friend, someone at church lets you down. They uh, say something hurtful about you in, in, in front of the gang. They, you've told them something in confidence and they blurt it out in front of others and you think, um, uh, and you're really frustrated with them. Well, they just don't show up at some social gathering that you'd organized. There's something that's happened. And uh, you think to yourself, well, now I have a choice. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 says, what am I to do with this individual? I am, chapter 4, verse 2, to be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. And yet there's another voice that bubbles up in you that says, well, but what you'd like to do is be completely resentful and bitter, be vindictive, shunning one another in spite that's what I'd like to do. What I'd quite like to do is, well, they've been, you know, they've let me down in the public sphere. What I'd like to do is, behind their back, I'm going to shun them, and behind their back, I'm going to tell everyone how awful they've been, and I'll probably exaggerate it a little bit more um, to make myself feel a bit more virtuous uh, and paint them in, in a negative light. That's what I'd like for. Well, you do. It's in the prosaic, it's in the small decisions of life 
that this plays out. Live a life worthy of your calling. Now make every effort, he says. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I was trying to think this week, are there, um, are there obvious demographics uh, in Christchurch, Mayfair, that sort of pull apart, that are not patient with one another, that irritate one another? Are, are there different groupings? I, I dwell upon it too. I couldn't really think of anything that's very, very obvious that that group doesn't speak to that group and uh, but look, let me just chuck out three that you might want to think about. I'm, I'm, I don't think these are big deals, but let me just chuck out three uh, that you might want to think about. Um, ethnicity might be one. I think that some British groups are not so good with those who come from overseas. Probably. Probably. I mean, not all. I'm not, and I don't feel it very strongly. Don't hear me. You know. Uh, let me just gently ask, that might be something you want to think about. If you've never spoken to anyone who didn't have received pronunciation, um, you want to think about that? As much as anything, you're missing out on one of the enormous joys of the Christian church. It's multicultural. And to only spend time with your own micro niche of a group, um, well, that denies the reality that God has united people from every background. In Jesus Christ, might be one. Um, a second might be uh, those who know one another from outside church, perhaps, yet gangs arrive from the same university or a little gang that know one another from uh, working on the same camp, and they're nice, and, you know, well, there's five, six, ten of us over here. We, you know, that's it, and we've got our gang. Yeah, but there are some people who arrive at Christ Church Mayfair on their own. They haven't got a gang. Uh, and if you're a gang and you don't speak to people outside of your gang, well, that's a bit mean, probably. I'm not thinking of anyone. Uh, you, you know, I'm really not. <laughs> I'm just chucking out ideas. Look, if the hat fits, wear it. But I don't know what hats. I don't even know what hats I'm throwing out. You know, just you know, it's just another. You think that? Be humble. That is, think of the needs of others ahead of your own. Uh, a third one, maybe. Uh, some people with their own sort of church passion get annoyed with people who have a different church passion. So there are those who are passionate about contending for the truth. We must contend for the truth. We must contend for the truth. And they get very irritated with those who say, no, we just go out and evangelize. We just do anything to evangelize. Contend for the truth. Evangelize, evangelize. Contend for the truth. And they never really speak to one another. And then there's other people over here saying, what about being compassionate? Um, uh, and you sort of, quite often in church, get, I mean, is it like utter broad brushes, I know, but sort of those sort of three groups. And yeah, I think of Christianity most in terms of being clear on doctrine and truth. No, I think of it more in terms of sharing the faith with those who don't yet know Jesus. I think mostly in terms of sort of projects which help those who, um, you know, need care, you know, Tamar and things like that. Those are the things which, which excite me. And oh, we all need one another. We really do need one another. Be gentle. Live a life worthy of your calling. How you do so by keeping unity. Why? Last little thing. Because or as there's one body. Verses four to six. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all.
striking is that verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, they're all about unity in behavior. But the New Testament will never let you say, that's important, but there does also need to be unity in the truth. You've got to have that as well. You can't just say, well, let's just agree to disagree over this sort of issue over here and be nice to one another. You can't do that. Unity in behavior, it always flows out of unity in the truth. And you've got to insist on both in the New Testament. And equally, Paul will say, there are times you've just got to separate from people. What about unity, Paul? No, not unity with them. They're false teachers, not with them. So it's unity in behavior flowing from unity in the truth. And here is, I think it's a sort of little Trinitarian thing that's going on. Spirit, Lord Jesus, Father. So I think there are three little trios here. There's one body, one spirit, just as you recall, to one hope. And then second group, you get one Lord Jesus, one faith in him, one baptism into him. And then thirdly, one God and Father of all. Who is he? He's over all and he's through all. I think that's the emphasis here. But the thing that gets mentioned first is the one body. Because that's Paul's primary concern here. You're called to this one church body that flows out of this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is fairly easy to ignore some people at church. It is quite easy to arrive at six o'clock on a Sunday. What am I getting out of this? To which Paul would say, no, 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 no. If you, if you dwell upon what God has done, if you think uh, about how he has bestowed his love on you and called you into this extraordinary thing called church, uh, and that the whole of the universe is, bring, is being brought unto the united, unity of Jesus Christ. That's what is the whole of history is. If you dwell upon those things, you can't think, well, what's in it for me? You have to arrive thinking, how can I grow unity? How can I encourage others? Let me take one practical example which doesn't reflect too well on myself. Look, you can be annoyed with someone. You can be irritated with a group of people, perhaps. What are you to do? Verse 3 here is very striking. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So here's a question. If there is a person, an individual here at church that you avoid, have you made every effort to maintain unity in the body of Christ? Quite a high standard. Every effort? I did try and apologize once on an email. I'm not sure that means every effort. You know, it is incumbent upon us to try and address these things, try and pursue unity. Okay, how do I do that? Because I am annoyed with them. Verse 2 tells you, we skipped over it slightly, but be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another, how? In love. Bearing with one another in love. That is, you know you've been loved, and therefore you can love others. Do you remember chapter 3, the prayer at the end of chapter 3, verses 14 to 21? Paul says, I, I pray that God gives you power so that you know how much he loves you in order that you may love other people. Here's the, the ability, the capacity, the strength, the power to forgive people, to bear with people, humble before others. You know you're loved. 
let me work it out practically. One example. So I can think of uh, a couple of years ago, I can't remember. Um, I was off work sick for a few weeks. And um, people knew it. Uh, some friends who knew I was off didn't get in touch at all. And uh, that's surprising, you know, if you know mates off work sick for a few weeks. And so I remember thinking, I guess I have a choice in this moment of, let's call him, take an example, Derek. I can think of Derek. And um, I, can, I have a choice. One, I can dwell upon him. I can think, you are a really selfish individual. I can think, all the times I've inconvenienced myself for you. Uh, I can think, uh, have you really not got five minutes to pick up the phone and even ask? Uh, I can dwell upon him and I'll probably resent him, and it'll be divisive. Okay, that's one option. Or, or I can bear with him in love, which means I think I think to myself, I'm loved by the God the Father. I'm a bit annoyed with Derek, but how many times have I let God my Father down? How many times have I offended him by the same pattern of sin, by making the same mistake, by... Uh, failing in the same way over and over again. And yet he's patient with me. He bears with me. If that's how God treats me, I, that's how I need to treat Derek. That's my choice. I dwell upon him. How much I'm annoyed with him. I dwell upon the Lord. How much he's loved me and been patient with me. And if I do the latter, I can live with shortcomings. I can endure wrongdoings. That's how it's working in the flow of this book. There we are, we're done. Chapter 4, verse 1. If you're a Christian, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Christchurch Mayfair. The Lord has called you to extraordinary privileges, to be a citizen in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, will be celebrating forever. To be a member of the household, to be brought into the family, to have Jesus as our brother, will be celebrating for eternity. To have God dwell within us, sustaining us, is quite wonderful. So live worthy of those things. If you know what God has done for you, you'll want to. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, those of us who are believers, we thank you and we praise you for calling us into your kingdom. We praise you for you've blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You made us citizens. You brought us into your family. You dwell within us as church by your Holy Spirit. These are wonderful, wonderful privileges. Would we be thrilled by them? Would we know how much we are undeserving of them? Would we therefore live consistently Live worthily of them, we ask. For our good, for the good of the church, for the reputation of the church, but above all, 
so that people may know that you are a great God and praise you for it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.